As we turn our attention now to the Word of God, we are in the midst of a series in the book of Acts. Before I read the text, let me give a little bit of behind the curtain of my own heart um, and kind of preface to what we're going to be reading and then what I'm going to be preaching. This morning, I'm going to be preaching on the church exclusively. Um, I, you know, I know a lot of you guys, I know most of you guys met with you, or talked to you, with you at least, so I have a good understanding, but wherever you are with regards to the church, there's this temptation of mine to, to not preach Christ, and, I, and I, I don't wanna not preach Christ in anything that I do. I always wanna put before you the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that you might call out for that grace and receive it. I wanna do that. And so when you're preaching on the church, there's always this temptation that I'm not preaching Christ. But here's the thing, I am preaching Christ today. The church is considered the body of Christ. And so we have to be very, um, uh, we have to be open to what the word says about the church. So we're gonna look at the church this morning and I'm gonna be calling us to embrace ordinary. Embrace the ordinary church as we find it in scripture because I think when we embrace the ordinary, we're embracing Christ. So with that being said, would you open up your bulletins or your Bibles to Acts chapter 15? I'm gonna start in verse 35, and I'm going to read all the way through Acts 16, 10. So if you have your Bible, here we go. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Now let me just give you a little bit of context on this. If you remember Acts 15, all the apostles had gathered in Jerusalem, or a lot of the apostles had gathered in Jerusalem to deal with this Gentile problem they were having. Should the Gentiles be circumcised or not? They came to a conclusion the Gentiles did not need to be circumcised to become saved, and then they're sending this word out. So that Paul and Barnabas head back to Antioch, which is where they were when they first encountered this problem. So they head back to Antioch, and they teach and preach the word of the Lord with many others also. So there you go. There's the context. And after some days, who knows how long this is, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, and I'm gonna call him John Mark from now on. <laughs> but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places for they all knew that his father was Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, 
come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God has called us to preach the gospel to them. This is the word of God. A few years ago, Kimberly and I were in New York City for a friend's wedding, and we were there over the weekend. So being good church people that we are and being a pastor, we decided we were going to go to a church in the city. Now, where we were in the city, we had the options of going to multiple churches, and out of curiosity, there was a church that I had heard of, and so I went on their website just to see what is the process and where are they meeting. It was in the middle of uh, New York, Midtown, and it wasn't Times Square Church for, for, for those that are affiliated with them. This is not Times Square Church, but it was around Times Square Church. And we started to read about some of the characteristics of just going to this church. It was like... Um, there were some of the things that said is that you had to line up well in advance just to get into the doors of this church because there was extraordinary music and everyone wanted to be a part of this church and to hear this extraordinary music and this extraordinary message by this compelling minister. And there was something about that that I was thinking, it's, it's kind of strange that in the middle of Times Square where all these Broadway theaters are that attract people from all over the world to be entertained by these incredible theaters, that here's a church kind of in the same vein. And I thought to myself, should we be lining up to get into church like a Broadway theater? Is this what the church should value? This extraordinary music, this extraordinary like preaching, is this a value that we want? What, what is this communicating about, about a church that wants to do these things. And I, th I thought about this. There's a great temptation of any church, including this. There's a great temptation to make the church this extraordinary experience that rivals any mega concert that we could pay to get into. And, and I think this, this temptation that is before any church to try to get people in the doors of our church is something we have to be very, very cautious about. Please do not hear me saying that an extraordinary music set and an extraordinary sermon are bad things. I am not saying those things. What I'm saying is that if those are the values that we have for church, we need to be very cautious, and here's why. When we take the extraordinary music experience and take the extraordinary preaching, what it can do is it elevates these characteristics to where it says we are gonna pursue this feeling over our faith, that I want this incredible music experience to where my heart is on the verge of tears when I'm singing songs, and then the pastor basically has me in the palm of his hand, and if he, if he says, bam, I'm scared and I'm crying, like, when we seek those things, this extraordinary, we, we, we tend to pursue the feeling over our faith, and do you know who pursues feelings over faith? This is why it's something that we need to be cautious about, cults. <laughs> cults, if you study cults throughout the history, it's always this extraordinary vision, this extraordinary experience. When I had the Mormons knock on my door when I was in seminary, one of the things, and you don't want to knock on a seminarian's door if you're a Mormon, you're 18-year-old coming on the field and you're talking to the seminarian. But one of the things that struck me that these Mormons were trying to say, if you read it, you will get the feeling in your heart that it is true. It is valuing the feeling over the faith. 
So when we value the extraordinary experiences, we're valuing the experience and the feeling of our faith. And this, my friends, is incredibly, incredibly dangerous. The church should be far more ordinary than extraordinary. And this is where I'm going with this idea of extraordinary and ordinary. The text that I read to you, I would say, is probably one of the most ordinary passages in the entire book of Acts. There's nothing extraordinary about it. There's nothing. I mean, it's just Paul and Barnabas, they got a little fight, and then they go, and then they're going to visit churches, and they're just preaching the word, and they're strengthening, and they're, they're doing all these things. It's so ordinary. There, there's no, like, you know, tongues of fire on the head, and there's nothing that's incredibly significant. It is ordinary. And I think this is a perfect picture of the way that the church, in ordinary seasons, at least a picture of some of the characteristics of the ordinary church. So here's what I want for us today. I want us to embrace the ordinary. Not to say that the extraordinary can't happen, because I, I love the extraordinary. And the feelings that come from the ordinary can be quite profound. But I want us to embrace the ordinary that the ordinary might drive us to the extraordinary, not embrace the extraordinary and then go from there. So how do we embrace the ordinary as a church? Well, there's four characteristics that, that this text puts before us that, that they're just four, four characteristics of an ordinary church. And I'm just, gonna, I'm just gonna talk about the four ordinary characteristics that we see in this text. I realize there's more ordinary characteristics that a church can have. Just mind you that, there, we could go on but I'm just gonna take four ordinary characteristics of the church from this ordinary text that we as a church would embrace those ordinary characteristics ourselves. So you following me? Let's do this. The first characteristic that I think it's so important for an ordinary church to embrace is grace. Ordinary church needs to embrace grace. Look at at the story, how it begins. Paul and Barnabas, they're in Antioch after being in the Jerusalem council and they're preaching and they're they're, they're strengthening the church and then Paul gets this idea, let's go back to the places where we started these communities all along our first missionary journey and let's check in with them. Let's see them face to face. Let's encourage them in the word. And Barnabas is sitting there going, yeah, 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 that's a great idea. And I know who to bring with us. And Paul says, who? He says, John Mark. And Paul's like, you've got to be kidding me. I'm not bringing that guy. Now, we know exactly why he doesn't want to bring with him. Because he abandoned them when they were on their first missionary journey. And, and there's a sense in which Paul's like, we need somebody to be there with us. And I can't trust him. But John Mark, who's this, or uh, Barnabas, who's this encourager, who's got this huge heart, he's like, yeah, but we've got to give him a second chance come on, Paul, let's do this. And Paul's like, I can't trust him. And there's this great fight, this great disagreement between these two. The word in the Greek that's used here is paroxysmus, paroxysmus. It's a a hard word, it's Greek to me. (laughs) But here's what the Greek word that Luke writes in this to me. There is sizable emotions in this disagreement. Now, the disagreement is not over orthodoxy. It's not over great theological truths. It's over how the church should operate. It's on practice. And there was this significant disagreement between two apostles of the church. 
And it was so great that they said, we can no longer do it together. Now, we might see this as a great tragedy. And I think in some cases, it's kind of the end of an era. Because Paul and Barnabas, they were two peas in a pod. And they did some amazing things. But this disagreement split them up. What happens? Well, Barnabas and John Mark, they go to Cyprus. That happens to be the very place where Barnabas grew up. Did you know that? And many think that John Mark is his cousin. So they're going home. And are they going home to hang it up? Is Barnabas saying, I'm done, this fight broke it up, I I can't do this? The answer is no. Because the very first place that Paul and Barnabas went on their first missionary journey, do you know where they went? They went to Cyprus. Barnabas is not giving up on, on the church and on the very thing that he and Paul came alongside of. No, he's doing exactly what they said. He's going back to Cyprus to encourage the church, and he's bringing John Mark with him. And what is Paul doing? Well, he's taking Silas, and he's going to the other churches that they went and established. What do we have here? We have two people doing what God wants them to do who have disagreements, strong disagreements about how it should be practiced. And what do we have here? We have the church. And one, one would think, oh man, did, did Paul go after Barnabas? Because we don't hear any Barnabas ever again in the book of Acts. Did you know that? It's done. We don't hear from him ever again. So what does Paul think of Barnabas after that? Well, we don't really know. But in 1 Corinthians 9, 6, he actually upholds Barnabas in the practice that Barnabas has with regards to his payment. So the things that we see Paul in looking at Barnabas, what we see him doing, even though they had this great disagreement about how the church should be practiced, we see Paul actually keeping his friend who he disagreed with in high regard. And what we see here is we see a disagreement, but we see a lot of kindness and we see a lot of grace. This is the ordinary church. There are disagreements all throughout the church world. You know that, right? This church is Presbyterian, but just down the street, there's a Baptist church. And just down the street, there's a Methodist church. And just down the street, there's an Anglican church. And there's all these different churches. And each church has a a particular way of practicing the faith. But how are we to understand them? Are we to understand them as being, well, no. How dare they? No. I think what this text holds us to is this. That ordinarily the church should see, hey, there's different ways to practice the church. Especially in regards to secondary and tertiary issues. Not primary theological issues. Secondary and tertiary issues. And so the church must be gracious to one another. If you don't disagree, like, just be gracious. One of the things that I've learned about the the great awakenings that have taken place in America in in the late 1700s and the early 1800s, and it's a fascinating thing, but one of the things that that I've learned that is incredibly encouraging to me is that when these awakenings happened, true spiritual awakenings happened, one of the things that happened is the Presbyterians, the Methodists, and the Baptists, they worked together. They had a lot of grace towards one another. The spirit was breaking out and people were coming to the Lord and they were all working together. It happened in both awakenings, the first awakening and the second. They came together. Of course they had their disagreements, but they also had a lot of grace. And I think it's the same for the ordinary church. 
I am speaking to this church and to you, and, and, and this is a very particular thing that I'm, like, as I look into, the, in, in, into this crowd right here, and as I consider your stories and where you come, so many of you have come to this church from different backgrounds, and there is a ten, ten, tendency in your heart to be incredibly embittered at the churches you come from because they didn't teach the doctrines that I now hold, that I, that I now love so dearly. How dare they? And there's a part of you that wants to just drag their name through the mud. But what this text is telling is that's not what the ordinary church does. No, the ordinary church embraces grace. And yeah, okay, we disagree, okay, on baptism. But you know what? The Lord is still proclaimed there. When I was in seminary, one, one of the most poignant uh, uh, examples that one of my professors used in, in our evangelism class, he, he did this, and I've told this story before, but he, he, he said, I, by a show of hands, how many of you were converted by a street preacher? Now, as I heard this question, I, I, I thought to myself, I can't stand street preaching. There's a lot of, you know, fire and brimstone and like people just don't want to hear that like i i uh, i just mm, i don't like that evangelism method it's just it's not my cup of tea but then hands started going up in the class and it was like one out of every five persons in the class was significantly impacted by a street preacher and you know what i thought i need to have a lot more grace towards those street preachers it's the same for the church. We can disagree, but we need to have a lot more grace for the way that God works in different traditions and heritages as our own. We should disagree theologically with issues, but we should have a lot more grace for those that differ on our practices. That's what the ordinary church does, guys. So let us embrace that. Embrace grace. That's the first characteristic that this text helps us to grasp in regards to the church. But there's a second characteristic that this text calls us to embrace. Not just embrace grace, but secondly to embrace scripture. Recall the purpose of this story. The purpose of this story and all that unfolds is Paul going to Barnabas and saying, we need to go back to the communities that we established on our first journey and to strengthen them. And part of the purpose was to, to give the pronouncement that the apostles made in Acts 15, which is Gentiles do not need to be circumcised. This is a big moment. But as they went to all these communities, what is the thing that they embraced in every place that they went? They embraced the scriptures. The scriptures were forefront of everything that they decided to do. The means of strengthening and encouraging the church throughout the world was the very word of God. The word of God is central to the ordinary life of the church. You recall what Paul writes to Timothy in his second letter. He says, all scriptures God breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for training in righteousness, that the man may be equipped for every good work. The word of God is the very rule of faith for the church. It is not experiences, it is the word of God. This is the ordinary practice of the church, to put the word of God before people. And sometimes the church puts the word of God before you in pretty plain language. 
One of my most encouraging things as I read of Paul and his missionary journeys is that Paul one time bored someone to death in the preaching of God's word. That gives me a, that's a, that's a low bar to hop over, you realize that. But it's amazing what God can do even through some of the sermons that barely get above that bar. The Spirit uses his word for his own doing and he strengthens and encourages and builds up the church. You know, there's all across the country right now, there are churches that are embracing a type of preaching that I do not think is ordinary, that is taking the word of God and putting it before. It's, it's, it's actually turning it on its head it's taking topics and saying, okay, let's try to be relevant. It's saying, okay, let's take this movie and let's make it relevant to you. And I just go, oh, you're trying to entertain or you're trying to give a TED Talk. That is not what the early church does. No. The early church and these people, they just embraced the scriptures and just gave it to you, pure. Just here it is. This is what builds up the church. And so as a church, we embrace the scriptures ordinarily. Yes, I try to preach it in a way that you can understand and it's compelling, but it doesn't always happen. But we embrace the scriptures because God can use these scriptures to do his bidding. So the ordinary church embraces grace. The ordinary church embraces scripture. But there's a third characteristic of an ordinary church from this text. And that is... The ordinary church embraces the next generation. So the call to us is to embrace the next generation. Consider what happens when Paul walks in um, to Derby and Lystra. Who does he find in Derby and Lystra? You recall Timothy. We don't get a lot of descriptions of who Timothy is in this text, other than just a few short things that he's well respected, that his father's a Gentile and his mother's a Jew. We don't. We're not given a lot. But we're, we see that Paul sees Timothy and says, I want you to go with me. Now, we have two letters that are in our Bible that are written to this individual. And so when we see this letter, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, we can kind of get a sense of who Timothy is from this. And in this, Timothy is called by Paul his child in the faith. So, so we get the sense that Timothy is one of his disciples that's been raised up by him. But we also see that Timothy... Timothy's battling some insecurity because he's seen as young. And he says, let not your youth, you know, do not, do not be despised for your youth. So you see this, this Paul, this apostle, who's raising up the, the next generation of leaders in Timothy. It's a beautiful picture of what the church ordinarily does. It's taking a baton and saying to the next generation, run, run. See, this is what the ordinary church does. It goes to the next generation and says, here you go. Here's our faith. Run with it. I will never, ever, ever, ever forget the day when I got the call from my Paul. There's a man named Ray Cortez whose, whose life and ministry has meant more to me than any other man named my, other than my father. His spiritual guidance, his preaching, his insight, his wisdom has shaped me more than any man alive today. I started listening to his sermons in college and his, his sermons brought alive to me the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. But I'll never forget the day when he called me and he says, Dan, I want you to come work with me. 
he said to me, Dan, come work with me. And he was in the middle of Timbuktu, Florida. And I was, like, I, was, I was in Tallahassee, Florida, where there were people all my age, and it was the most socially rich experience of my life. But I said, I do not want to pass this opportunity to learn from him. That's a baton I want to take. And I'm so grateful that I took that baton. This church, well, we have batons too. And we have a Timothy program in lieu of exactly what this text is. It's the Timothy program that I'm literally handing the baton of faith right now to Blake and to Jordan. They are taking the baton of faith. And they're enrolled in seminary and they're learning Things that I don't understand all the time. You gotta learn from people like Scott Swain and these guys that are a lot smarter than me. But we're gonna help you get there because it ain't cheap. And the ordinary church makes it a value to pass the baton to the next generation. You know that, right? And so we, we set aside part of our monies that we have to go to the next generation. Now look, Blake is graduating this spring which means that there's an opportunity for some of you to hop on board. There, there might be in your heart stirring up, maybe the Lord is calling me to ministry. If that's true, come talk to me because I want to pass the baton of faith to you. There's another thing that the Spirit, uh, through his word, kind of impressed upon me that I want to share with you, and this might be controversial, and I don't care if it is. But all, the Spirit also impressed upon me the necessity to consider the women of the church and their theological education as well. For far too long, and in the churches that I've been a part of, the women have often been just kind of pushed to the side and said, oh yeah, you go figure out how, how to knit and to teach knitting to the next generation. Like, I've seen this in seminaries. Like, the wives of the seminary got together and made crafts. And I'm like, Okay, some might like crafts, but is this really? And I thought to myself, I, I, I think it's time that we start a Phoebe program, a Lydia program, something like that. Not to say that women are going to become preachers. No, but to equip women with the truths of our faith and to help them go learn from Scott Swain and from these great leaders too. Not that they're going to be pastors. No. They might grow in their faith and then teach it to the next generation of women. You, you realize that another person who received the baton from Paul was Titus. And you know what Paul commended Titus to do in chapter two of his, his letter to Titus? Tell the older women to teach the younger women. Why would we not equip the women the same way that we equip some of the men? There's a woman in our denomination, Paige Benton Brown. She is a killer with regards to teaching. How did she get there? She learned, and she was taught. We should do the same thing. And so one of my convictions that I've had, and I don't know, I don't have anything laid out, but I want to see women go to seminary too and to learn the deep doctrines of their faith and to grow. I certainly can't teach you those things, but there are people that can. So maybe if this impresses on your heart going, uh, I'd, like, I'd like to do that, come talk to me. Because the ordinary church passes the baton of faith from one generation to the next. And this church, hopefully, Lord willing, is an ordinary church that does just that. Because that's a characteristic of an ordinary church.
in light of Paul. So the ordinary church embraces grace, embraces scripture, embraces next generations, and finally, the fourth characteristic, and this is the last one, embraces mission. The ordinary church embraces mission. I, I think it's a fascinating reality as we, as we consider this text that this probably took place over a couple years. We read through it in, in a matter of two, three minutes, however long it took for me to read through these, but this probably took place over a period of years, Paul going about. And, and one of the things that we see, he's going from one place to the other and he's going here and there and he's going everywhere. But then we see that the spirit two different times says, you're not going there, you're not going there. What I want you to see is that Paul's trying to go there, but the Spirit's saying, you're not going there. Paul has a mission, but he's being denied going to certain places. Now, I don't want you to think too deep into that. There's a lot of speculation about what was the Spirit doing. It's it's, it's not important. I think the most important thing that we have to see is that Paul is on mission, and he eventually ends up in the little place called Troas after being denied going to these different places. He is he is going. I'm on mission. I never heard of Troas, but in Troas, he sees a vision. And in this vision, he sees a man from Macedonia. And what is that man doing? Saying, help. Macedonia was not on Paul's first missionary journey. You know that, right? They've never heard the very word of God. And what does Paul do in the last verse of our text? He says, God's calling us to Macedonia. We go on mission. You see, that's what the ordinary church does. It goes on mission. It seeks that place where there is no church, where there is no establishment. I had an experience much like Paul, and I, I, maybe this is reading too much in it, but when I graduated from seminary, I was hired as a church planting or church startup like apprentice. They, they were gonna equip me to start a church and to, to create a church. And Kimberly and I felt God calling us to Tallahassee, Florida. And, and so the first year of our apprenticeship, this program, we spent time trying to network and navigate into the city of Tallahassee, Florida. And God was opening some of these doors and we were exploring them. We went on some visits up there. But then slowly but surely, at the near end of that first year, all these doors that we had opened in Tallahassee started going boom, 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 boom. And what felt like the lost time of a whole year trying to network and navigate in Tallahassee, it, 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 it was gut-wrenching. It was heartbreaking. I, I wanted to go on mission for the Lord in this, in this capital of, of the state of Florida, which I call home. I mean, I'm, I, I, I love the state of Florida. This is where God's calling me. And he's like, no, I'm calling you to a different capital. Of course, the Lord ends up calling me to Little Rock, and I am so grateful, truly grateful, for God calling me here and his calling in establishing this church and putting it in you into this room right now. I mean, if you will, I know a lot of you have come from the church and are part of the church, but you are like the Macedonian church. This is what the church is. It's on mission. And it's mysterious how God's working, but this is what the church does. I've put this before you before, that, 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 that there's a vision of Central Hope that we establish four churches in, by 2032. 
that we raise up the next generation of leaders and that these leaders go and they start churches in other places. And some of them might be here in central Arkansas. Some of them might be in the Delta. Some of them might be in Richmond, Virginia. I don't know. It doesn't matter. But our vision is to see the church established in different parts. Why? Because the ordinary church embraces mission. And we want to do that as well. So by 2032, we want to be a church, not a big church, but a church that establishes churches throughout our country and the world because the ordinary church embraces mission. So my wife and I, when we were in New York City, we, we decided to not stand in line to go to this church to hear this extraordinary band and this extraordinary message. No, we decided to go to the ordinary church just off Central Park. And no, the music was not extraordinary. It was actually ordinary. No, the liturgy was not extraordinary. It was ordinary, much like the ones we did today. The preaching did not have my jaw on the floor as if it was the greatest message I'd ever heard in my life. It was not a life-changing message. It was a beautiful message, a message that strengthened me in my faith. As I walked out of the church, I very vividly recall a Jewish woman being wheeled out on a wheelchair and her saying, I'm a Jew, I'm not a Christian. Why did you wheel me in here? <laughs> Literally, I, I, that is a vivid memory as I see her coming down the aisle. I remember in that church also interacting with a former student that my wife and I had interacted with. It was all very, very ordinary but it was beautifully ordinary. If I told you the name of the church, you'd be like, oh, that church has done a lot. <laughs> it's an extraordinary church, but I'm telling you, it is an ordinary church. It is an ordinary church because that's what the church is. <laughs> it is a church that ordinarily gives grace, ordinarily gives the scripture, ordinarily passes the baton to the next generation, and ordinarily is on mission. Friends, let us embrace ordinary. Let us be a church that embraces ordinary and let's let the spirit take care of the extraordinary. Friends, let us enjoy this and let us be a church that does this. Let me pray. Jesus, you love your church. You love your church far more than any of us love the church. We're reminded in Ephesians 5 that you died for the church, that you gave yourself up for her. She is the apple of your eye. And oh Lord, may we, in light of this great love that you have for us, reflect your love back by being ordinary, by holding these truths up, grace, scripture, the next generation, missions, for the glory of your name and not our own. Lord, there is that great temptation for any church to be the church, the cool church, whatever it might be. Oh, Lord, let us just be an ordinary church that brings glory to you. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.